Hi there, this is Ryan File from the Mail Tribune, and you're listening to The Insider. If this is your first time here, welcome, welcome. The format is pretty simple. I see a story of ours that required a bit more elbow grease than usual, and I talked to the writer about that to get a behind-the-scenes look at how they pulled it all together. I'm bringing you a BOGO episode today, with two reporters for the price of one. Damian Mann and Vicky Aldis joined me, Greg Stiles, and Mark Freeman on putting out this week's five-part series on summer wildfires and smoke. It looked at quite a bit, including the fallout as it related to tourism and local economies, initial attack, the question that always seems to be on everyone's minds as to whether more could have been done, technology, and fuels reduction, which comes out tomorrow. Vicky and Damien did parts two and three of this series respectively, and I really wanted to have them on to pick their brains a little bit, because I felt as though their parts were tied together pretty substantially. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Vicky, I want to start with you because of what your story focused on, and that's the concept of initial attack on the fire. What is that, and why is this such a key component in this series? Initial attack is somewhat self-explanatory in the name, but it's when the firefighters go out and really try to snuff out those fires quickly before they can grow into large-scale fires that produce smoke all summer. The Oregon Department of Forestry has a goal to suppress 98% of fires at 10 acres or less. So you could see how if they achieve that goal, they really could put a stop to quite a few of the fires that grow to be so troublesome. They didn't quite get there this summer because on one day we had 145 fires started by thousands of lightning strikes that swept through southern Oregon. And I wanted you to take me and basically everyone else back to that day, which was July 15th. That was the day that we had that infamous lightning storm that caused so much of the trouble we had to deal with this summer. So you already kind of touched on it a little bit, but what happened that day and how did that impact firefighters' abilities to do quick attacks on the fires like you just mentioned? I was actually working that day, which was a Sunday, and so I could hear on the scanner just all day long after that lightning storm firefighter saying things like, what's the estimated time of arrival for that air support I needed? Where am, where am I in line for the air support? Just all day there was this scramble to have air support, which is really helpful for the ground firefighter. So at least listening in and going out to some of the fires and going out to the air tanker base, even though planes and helicopters were just landing and taking off nonstop, it didn't seem like there was quite enough air support to go around. And of course, we did see some of the fires get out of control that day and continue on through the summer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to read this part of your story to you, actually. Um, It says, when resources are stretched thin, firefighters tackle the flames closest to people and homes. Remote fires in places like the Calmeopsis Wilderness aren't a priority, especially during initial attack operations. Now, the bit about Calmeopsis Wilderness, you're referring to the Taylor Creek and the Klondike fires. See, I get why people and homes are a priority. But something I think a lot of people struggle with is the notion that wilderness areas can't be priority too, and that's mostly, maybe even all, due to the smoke that's produced. So are fire agencies giving what takes precedent a second look in that wilderness areas could get bumped up a little bit? It's really tough on firefighters because they just don't have infinite resources. And you could see why. Imagine the criticism that they would get if they let a fire, for example, in the Ashland watershed go and it burned up a giant chunk of Ashland. We could have a lot of casualties, especially in places like Ashland, Shady Cove, places that are surrounded by forest land. So they really just can't ignore those fires that are starting so close to communities. 
But Merv George, he is the new supervisor for the Rogue River Siskiyou National Forest, and he ordered smoke jumpers to go into the Kalmyopsis Wilderness area. And those smoke jumpers were on the fire for three days fighting it, but they just couldn't get the air retardant drops that they needed to help back up uh, the firefighters on the ground. And Merv George told us that if they break a femur, if they cut an artery, there just isn't a way to extract the firefighters in such rugged, steep terrain, and it puts people's lives on the line. And we've seen firefighters become a little bit more cautious over the decades when we've had some mass casualty events involving firefighters who've been overrun by wildfires. But Merv George, the new forest supervisor, he was brought in because he is known as one of the most aggressive fire managers in the Forest Service. So I think he really does prioritize the, the fires out in the remote areas, but again, it's a question of resources and what's available on the initial attack days. And um, he says that he would like to see some dedicated resources assigned to Southern Oregon that couldn't be shifted elsewhere, and maybe that would help the firefighters have the tools that they need. Gotcha. Damien, I'm going to switch to you next, and I wanted to actually start off by reading the first few sentences of the story that you did. An Oregon Department of Forestry official doesn't pull punches when describing the federal government's response to two of Southern Oregon's biggest fires this season. I'm extremely disappointed, said Dave Larson, district forester for ODF in Central Point. Whenever the fire got aggressive, they backed off, but when it got more manageable, they didn't get on it. The Taylor Creek and Klondike fires, started by lightning July 15th, burned through more than 200,000 acres. They and other fires pumped heavy smoke into the sky for most of the busy tourist season, costing the local economy millions of dollars in lost revenue. Even firefighting agencies seem to be frustrated with efforts to get these fires out. So, I mean, do you think there's going to be discussion and perhaps even changes that would prompt federal and state agencies to be more aggressive in their initial attack strategies, especially on fires that are harder to get to? Yeah, I think there's a lot of conversation about that right now. I think they're going to get a lot of pressure from people in Oregon to go after these fires more aggressively in the future. Um, it was interesting because I went out on the uh, Klondike to do a story on that one day, and then the Ramsey Canyon fire broke out that day, and I had to head over there. And it was amazing. They had to they diverted resources that were on the Klondike over to Ramsey Canyon. So in some ways, it was good that we had all these resources locally at hand so that they could divert them to another fire that broke out pretty, you know, pretty much at the same time that we had all those other fires on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and Ramsey Canyon, they got out super quick too. Yeah, that was, you know, pretty much less than a week they had it corralled. Um, they, they had a pretty good road system in there too. That, that helped them a lot. And that's one of the problems with the Calmeopsis is there's no real good road systems to get resources, you know, like fire engines, crews, that type of thing into the fire. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that ODF would like is, you know, better management of those kind of essentially old logging roads and stuff like that to get, be able to get the resources in there and also provide an exit point for firefighters if they do get caught by front flames or something like that. Yeah. Um, do you think, and this is this is kind of for both of you actually, do you think that there were any unique lessons gleaned by agencies like ODF and the Forest Service this fire season? Because I know that every fire season, you know, you kind of have your share of takeaways, like, okay, we should have done this and this. This one, I mean, we, I think we can all agree this one was one of the more problematic ones in a while. So, I mean, do you think that there are any unique 
lessons that they that they're taking under advisement? Yeah, I think they, you know, if we really are going to have the, these kind of severe fire seasons, uh, they really need to sit down and think of a way to manage it better. You know, I mean, thinning's obviously, you know, one of the things that's being talked about. Although thinning millions of acres of forests is a tough, you know, thing to do, and it it would be an ongoing thing. You'd have to do it every ten years or so. Go back through the same area and either do burnouts or something to to contain the uh, the vegetation that's grown back. I saw the the biscuit fire. You could see it from the Klondike. You looked across the Illinois River. And you saw this whole hillside and it had brush that was fifteen twenty feet tall, and that was all you know had been burned fifteen years earlier by the the uh, in the biscuit. Hmm. What about you, Vicky? I think the uh, Forest Service and Oregon Department of Forestry, when they saw in the forecast that lightning was coming and also just seeing it was going to be a bad fire season, they started gathering up fire engines, air tankers, anything they could get their hands on. Um, So I think that the advanced preparation did help them do well with initial attack, even though some of the fires did get away from them. But I think knowing in advance and getting some good weather forecasts helps them. And I think they probably will continue this effort to marshal their resources as fast as they can when they do see a lightning event on the horizon. It was interesting. Um, I was speaking to the weather service about uh, my bit in the story, which is about surveillance technology. And uh, one of the meteorologists, uh, Charles Smith, was telling me that um, one of the things he wants to do with studying lightning and documenting the number of strikes is they eventually want to get to the point where they can say, they not necessarily predict how a fire season is going to shake out because of lightning storms, but if they see something that looks like an anomalous event that is something that's like the July 15th storm, they can get on marshalling resources and being a little bit more prepared quicker because they can point to past ones like, okay, this this cell is looking a lot like this cell that's coming. So um, get ready. I just think that that's incredibly interesting. I don't know all the minutia that goes into that, but it seems like it would be a, a huge help just in terms of seeing these things a little further out on the horizon and having a bit, bit better vantage point. Um, one more quick thing that I, that I took away from my story, uh, which ran today, incidentally, go read it if you haven't, um, is that reporting on these wildfires, I think, is the single most important thing we've reported on this year. So much of our lives can be held hostage until late September, and have they have been f- for the last several years. I mean, and you can tell me that I'm wrong here. Am I, am I wrong? Or, or, do you, or do you think that this is seriously one of the most important things that we report on right now? Probably, I would say so. How come? Uh, It's just got such a big impact on the local economy, on our health potentially. I mean, you've got kids, you know, you probably worry about them going outside during the summer, and it's hard to lock your kids up day after day. Four-year-olds with cabin fever is different than 34-year-olds with cabin fever, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I'm in my 60s now, and, you know, breathing that kind of air is not something I want to do either. I remember growing up in the L.A. basin, and it looked a lot like the summers that we've had the last couple of years there for most of my upbringing in L.A. So I remember yeah. going in, in the house, Mommy, Mommy, my lungs hurt. <laughs> oh, wow. So, uh, you know, it was probably equally as bad then, I, I would say. Yeah. What about you? 
I agree that it is probably the single most important thing that we covered. I mean, it's months and months of coverage and impact. We saw everything from people having to evacuate their homes to I went to visit some doctors and a doctor told me that he had had some patients who, who had some weight problems and some health issues and they had been on a good trajectory, eating right, getting exercise, and then the smoke comes in and suddenly they don't have the money to go to a gym and have a gym membership. They rely on walking, doing things outside. When they can't do that, he said they started gaining weight and their health gains that they had been making over the years were reversed just in one summer. He could see a visible decline in their health and plus the added weight. So it just impacts everybody, whether you are worried about losing your home or just worried about your own health or the health of your family. Yeah. Anything else you guys wanted to add? No, that's... Okay. Well, thank you both very much again for coming on. I really appreciate you uh, kind of giving me and uh, listeners a bit more insight into what went into this. So uh, thank you for your time. Thanks, Ryan. Great podcast. Yeah. Glad to be here. (laughs) Thank you. You guys can listen to past episodes of this at mailtribune.com slash podcasts. Once again, this is Ryan File, and you've been listening to The Insider.